Welcome to Wake Up with Alan Watts. It's a seminar or lecture or radio talk. Call it what you will. These labels are mere words. Words are mere symbols. My name is Alan Watts. I am a sort of bearded fellow. I describe myself as a hybrid Zen Western pseudo-intellectual with a roll-neck sweater and a pipe, if that helps you in any way. Visualize the great me that is speaking to you today. And what they tell me is the 1970s in California, the Bay Area. Sausalito or thereabouts? No matter. Let's just jump right in. What is reality anyway? Have you ever looked at it? Can you look at it? Did you know that your eyeball is sort of an optic grape filled with rods and cones and other visual senses? The sort of average hypnotized Westerner, that is to say a rational materialist, blinks his eye over five times every minute. Now, why is this? We are told that fabulists, liars, they blink uncontrollably when they spin their yarns. Nixon, too, has this tell. When we observe, say, our breakfasts, we see the tall glass of milk. We see the captain's crunch, the crunch breeze, of course, and other such diversions. Toast, if you should be among the lucky. Orange juice, a melon, your newspaper, all that stuff. And when we look at that overflowing glass of 2% fat cow's milk, we can nearly taste the room temperature lactose, that all-giving bovine juice that flows from the udder of the cow industry. But our minds are in the thrall of language, you see. The word milk, those four white letters superimposed over the bovine waters. You see what I'm getting at? It's literalism, it's fealty to the word, the concept. If a super Zen yogi were to ask you what milk tastes like, would you describe it in words? Or would you offer him a sip from the dripping glass? For he who asks is not interested in the answer, he is doing a dance, a dance of milk. And so too is reality ultimately a dance. Most of us, I should hope, like to get out and splash around in nature, a field or something like that. Growing up in the rural areas of the English countryside, I was always fascinated with nature. If I saw a rock, I might go over to it and check it out, or, or a blade of grass or something like that. Have you ever watched a donkey biting a tree? That's nature. Also birds. They're everywhere. They span the globe in search of nests, always searching and singing their songs. Now, a scientist might say, oh, that bird is called a Latin-bellied genus fowl, or, you know, something like that. Or her bird song is a signal to the flock that there are no more worms in the area. Or mating songs, you know, the romance of the flowers, etc. Now, some birds go on all day. They wake you up. Does it mean anything? Can't it just be sort of a sound effect done to amuse themselves? Why assign a meaning to the birdsong? Why do we always try to superimpose our colonial view upon the creatures of the great zoo of the fields of England town and those areas around it? You know, it baffles me. It makes me laugh. <laughs> Some consider mathematics to be the ultimate expression of reality, but that's just mere symbols. Your home typewriter, the one you use to dash off editorials to your local newspaper, it has a row of symbols. The dollar sign, the percent sign, 
the curious asterisk exploding out from a central radius like the flash of fairy creation itself, like God's own caveat. It's all right there, symbols. Why is a certain string of symbols okay for the child? Hash marks, exclamation points, all perfectly fine for children to read over their cap and crunch in the newspaper, Drabble, Hagar the Horrible, Garfield and such. We all know what those symbols mean. And yet, spell them out in standard letters and suddenly we must do something about this Garfield. Oh yes, there are never a shortage of pious concerned people whose chief interest is in the language and not the substance. In school, the headmaster might line the children up. Today, we are going to learn how to write a check. Who here has their own checking account? And all these little hands will pop up into the air. Oh, me, Mr. Headmaster, I've got one. It's really keen to go to the bank. What kind of a child would rather have a dreadful little perforated booklet of promissory notes rather than the candy bars it could buy? And think of the milk. A fortune in milk could be had. And yet, the milky child is scorned. He's wasted his money on 2% white milk while Timmy and Lucretia over there are earning 7% APR on their deposits. Why, they're the smart ones. Keep an eye on those two. They're really going places. <laughs> now we live our lives from adorable little cradle to spooky grave in a vast symbolic game of Candyland. The path, sort of made of lozenges of sugar lumps instead of stone and frosting in place of mortar, clutching our worthless symbols as if they were more important than the grandfather sitting across the game board. It was St. Jesus Christ of the Church of God Almighty who said it best on page 300 of the King James Abridged Secret Miniature Bible. Let the child with the milk play in my yard, for he or she knows the true value of the milk of the kingdom of God. Let him speak his nonsense with his or her milky breath and cast them not elsewhere. But we've forgotten. A Pope ripped it out in 1100 AD in a fit of pique, and so the materialists took over. In the serene gardens of the Zen masters, they don't accept checks. I've asked. They just don't. Which brings us round to reality. I say, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? You might say, well, the 49ers, and I say, nonsense. They're going to lose badly to the Chargers. Who's right? You think you're right, and I'm a fool on a fool's errand. And I feel naturally quite sorry for you, and so we argue. We dash pottery around, we grip and grasp and struggle late into the night, and at the end of this fierce battle of the wills, one man triumphs. But the very next day, the topic is already getting stale. The winner of that great sports argument can bring it up at the office job at IBM or some other conglomerate or government job or the social services or at the bar and grill. And what do you get? 
diminishing returns. The outcome of the sporting game is predetermined by a dizzying number of factors stretching back to the very big bang of creation itself. There's no limit to how closely you could study this. You could make a lifetime of the analysis. You'll never even begin to understand the manifold permutations that ripple and glint like so many strings of sporting spider webs, catching the dewdrops of the National Football League statistics. You could go mad studying this, and so many have. Imagine a lifetime of sporting madness. Where I live, there is a place where ladies get their hair done, as they say. Done up once a week or so. Great hair dryers and so forth. They make an afternoon of it. How alike to the bird and their nests and their eternal song. I pass by this place on my daily nature's walk. Nature is everywhere. Not just in the field behind the beauty salon, but in the entire reach of the universe. The moon, for example. It's been in the news, the 1970 moon landing. All those American astronauts having a ball up there on the silvery surface of our natural satellite, playing golf and planting flags. We gaze at it romantically from down here. It's a symbol of romance, and it's a symbol of conquest. And yet, it is real. It is also a pejorative. We may say so-and-so is a lunatic. They've dozed under the beams of the moon and cannot be trusted. They are riddled with a moon madness. They are howling mad at the moon and so forth. Avoid them. Or we might say, one of these days, you know, I'll give you such a punch in the jaw it will send you to the moon. Did you know it was once believed there were birds living on the moon? Moonbirds, as they said, nesting in craters and eating moon dust with silver beaks. Why did we once believe this to be so? Over all contrary notions and writings from Galileo and his contemplative contemporaries? It's imagination, you see. For we carry nature in our imagination. We are nature. We drink the hot cow's milk for breakfast every morning. Our bodies are made up of the dust of great cosmic diamond collisions, and we grow beards that catch the burrs of the field as we nap underneath the shade of the salon's neon sign. We are told that man and nature are in a battle, like those two sports rascals from my parable of the Super Bowl. Do you remember that? Yes, the sports guys, always tugging and ripping away at the other, the devil that we must annihilate. But it is not an external devil, nor is it a devil within us. Rather, we are that man whom we yell about football at. Can we not rise to the great occasion of our nature? If we must fight, make it more fair, more fun. Recognize the cosmic dance, put out cushions in sports nachos for our enemies. The great Zen master who instructed me once told me of a Hindu farmer who was out in his Indian farm over in Bombay. Every afternoon, when the sun was at its zenith, he would go out into his field and scatter the mustard seed over his crop of chickpeas. 
Now at this time, mustard was in a shortage, and seed was hard to come by, very expensive, and uh, not something practical. And why would you scatter the seed of one plant over the seedlings of another type of plant, the chickpea? Why indeed? His farming neighbors would observe him doing this every day, and they would call out to him, you know, Hey, you Indian farmer, don't you know that mustard is quite expensive this time of year with the shortage, you know, and, you know, you're wasting mustard seed. The farmer would just shrug and continue the scattering of these very small, fine, almost a powder-like seeds, mustard crucial in Indian cuisine and prized to the world around from Timbuktu to Paramus, New Jersey, where the oceanside hot dog trade relied on a steady flow of mustard. At the end of the chickpea season, it came time for the Indian harvest of the beans. It was a festival. All the other farmers lined up their beans for the local Maharaja to judge. The winner would receive a complimentary donkey as a prize, and it was coveted all across the Indian farming areas. Worth a dozen rupees, this donkey. Well, the Maharaja rolled into town on his donkey, and he tasted the beans over here, he tasted the beans over there. All the farmers were quite frozen stiff with anxiety, hoping that they would win that incredible donkey. Now, when the great Maharaja approached our farmer, he looked at his chickpeas. How come these chickpeas are so yellow, he asked. The farmer said, try them and see. The Maharaja approached our farmer and he scooped up a great fistful of beans and tossed them into his mouth and munched them down and he cried out, Mustard! Why these chickpeas taste of the finest Indian-style mustard, and I do believe we have our winner. The other farmers were shocked. They could not believe their misfortune. They gazed upon our farmer with a sort of covetousness and distrust. The donkey was awarded to the farmer. The farmer signed the form, officially receiving the royal donkey, and the rest of their days were spent in a sort of agricultural ecstasy of supreme contentedness. And they both retired with great wealth and respect, for they had invented the mustard-flavored chickpea, saving so many steps in northern Indian cuisine. In Western society, we gaze at the lunatic, and we pity him. We say, he's deranged. He knows not what he means. What is this moon case going on and on about? This makes no sense. He's off his rocker. He's lost the plot. Why, that's what the other farmers thought about our award-winning chickpea bean farmer, yes. You see, one man's crazy times freak out his another man's perfectly rational 3 p.m. mustard ritual yielding one hell of a donkey. The great dance of the cosmos, Shiva, St. Augustine, Abraham Lincoln, all considered perfectly off their rocker, but they have gone down in history like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Madness may be a maladaptation to the times we are living in. If you lived 
in the caveman times in a cave, listening to literal rock and roll. You know, some some guy in the cave banging on a rock with another rock, or perhaps rolling a rock around and doing that crunch sound. Well, that's pretty much all you'd have for entertainment, aside from blowing some mud onto the wall around your palm and making a handprint. What if one of those cavemen were to put on the cassette of The Dark Side of the Moon by the Pink Floyd? He wouldn't have made it halfway through side one before he was cast out and expelled from their society. He would have to live on the edge of Cave Town, a pariah, an outcast, a sort of a bad caveman. No gazelle meat, no company of the fellow cave people. Eternal separation from the cave clan. What would he have in its stead? An unplayable cassette. He could be attacked by cave marauders who would pull the tape out and scatter it around like so much black uh, Christmas tinsel. Today in the West, we expel not just one, but many. A whole generation, the flower children, the hippies. What is it that they are saying that is so antithetical to our structures? Is it the whole give peace a chance thing, or is it uh, flower power? What is it? Is it that they will not fight the war and feed the war machine of the Pentagon and of McDonnell Douglas and all those aerospace companies producing the missiles which threaten to destroy our world in a flash of nuclear annihilation? Are you really ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Is everything they say wrong just because you do not like the Pink Floyd? If you give this album a chance, you shall soon see that it contains all of human experience boiled down into a combination of the rock and roll and jazzy influences of post-psychedelia. Classical music, too, in its day was derided as a bunch of rackets and mop-topped nonsense. Mozart was told to go fuck off. Beethoven had a particularly hard time with his neighbors. Are we to believe this propensity has been wrung out from our natures, like the sloppy water from our janitor's mop? The mop water, my friends, is with us to this very day. What is it about the clown that provokes such a reaction? Isn't a symphony orchestra just the clowning around of violins, the dance of the tuba? You can train a horse to ring a bell for oats, but he knows not that the pitch of the bell, the gong, and the orchestra's timpani kettle drum is tuned to the fundamental frequency of the cosmic consciousness, or space lord. What is the most popular movie at the American cinema right now? That would be American Graffiti by George Lucas. It is simply filled with music, doo-wop and Wolfman Jack, all that sort of stuff. Runaway by the Del Shannons. It's, uh, it's remarkable. So many hits. So many hits by the original artists. What is the point? What's the point of all this music? If the point was to reach the final note, the best symphony's conductor would be the one who reached that note the fastest. And the finest song would be the one with the most notes, the flight of the bumblebee or Chantilly Lays. Music is the most temporary of arts. It's even quicker than an ice sculpture. 
You could train for a lifetime to be the finest violinist in all of Italy, and once that Italian opera is done, you're left swinging in the breeze, Giuseppe. Where do old notes go? Think about that the next time you're in the bath. And when you emerge from the waters wearing your resplendent belted robe and you make your way to your living's room to turn on your great screen of information and entertainment, the television, what is it that you hear? The news, you might say. You're a level-headed person. You're a rationalist, a westerner. You need to know what's been going on in the world all day long. You flip on the news. It's got no artistic value whatsoever. It's just a string of lies and Pentagon propaganda. The news, of course, is just a list of scandals and little informational tidbits meant to keep you occupied while the real money flows in ways that you cannot hope to glean from these headlines. Senator so-and-so found in the company of a certain young lady, or perhaps, uh, perhaps a certain congressman was caught robbing a bank, am I right, and then when they lie to you and tell you that the weather is going to be partially sunny tomorrow, after that, they cut to a commercial. You've got your sponsor's messages. They spend millions of dollars every year. And how do they get you to remember their slogans? Why buy music? and the many singing choirs of harmonized human voices that make up the jingle and advertising commercial music industries. How jolly. How very gay. Purchase, you know, this uh, Pontiac or uh, this type of dish detergent and your life will be remarkably improved because your dishes will no longer have spots and your neighbors will regard your silverware as being uh, clean enough to eat on and they'll want to come over and hang out and listen to your problems and troubles and tell you their own. You smell awful. You just smell awful and everyone knows it and your hair is... Dotted with dandruff like the stars of the sky. Rubbish. You're perfect as is. If you suffer from halitosis or hangnails or dandruff, well, that's just how it is, baby. That's just the conditions that prevail. You've come a long way. You've evolved from the slime. Your body is a medical miracle pumping out billions of transactions of the cells and the dancing of the atoms. Who cares if you've got the dandruff? Each flake of dandruff is a cosmos in itself. Your flaky scalp is worth more than the Sistine Chapel. Do you suffer from ring around the collar or dishpan hands? There could be a Chinese fellow who has no hands. He was born with uh, stamps. And he's perfectly happy. Look at him. He can write calligraphy in five languages. And you can't even operate the typewriter that you just had to have from all those IBM commercials. Go on, sing with me. IBM typewriters, they're the finest in the world. It's rubbish. They just made it up. You, do, you don't have to believe that stuff. And how many times in a row are we meant to see the same commercials? By the time he is five years of age, the American child has seen the commercial for that uh, Alpo dog food over 6,000 times. Can you imagine such a thing? Disastrous. 
It's like a great mantra, a chant. It's our culture's prayer. And what god are we praying to, anyway? A dog food god. A god of beer. Heineken beer. You can forget your troubles if you just have a Heineken beer. Heineken, it'll really take you on a trip of bubbles and intoxication. And uh, you've really arrived if you've got a Heineken in your hand, you see. You've really made it. You're in the big time now, boy. You've really made the grade. Of course, in reality, it's just a bunch of stuff that'll give you a headache and make you say unto all things to your co-workers at IBM. It'll make you throw your punch cards in the air high above your head and say, you know, screw the boss, or screw the system. It'll give you a hangover. And now you've got to pick up all those punch cards and write out an apology letter on your typewriter. What are you going to do? How do you get rid of this headache? Take Tylenol brand uh, headache powder for every sort of niggling bit of discomfort you might ever receive in your life. Well, maybe it's a symptom of something else. Contradictions and Heineken's. Perhaps you oughtn't be living the life that you're living. And you know it. You ought not to be wearing those shoes. They're too tight. But your boss says no sandals for men in the office. But women must always wear sandals. Why? Why is this? Did you ever notice that the American boss will be like, I need this report by Monday morning, have it on my desk, it's the most important thing, and you work all weekend, and you finally show up looking like the dog dragged you in off the lawn, and you've got rips in your shirt, and you're covered up with cuts and little nicks from all your scrapes? And the boss glances at your report and spats it in a condescending way and says, mm, thank you very much. He didn't need it, you see. He just wanted to ruin your weekend. That's the power structure. That's what we teach our children with those terrible commercials. People ask me, Alan Watts, how do you watch television when you would... Uh, you decry these commercials so? And I say, I don't even own the television. But I can see my neighbor's television through his sliding deck doors. And let me tell you something. There is nothing on worth watching. Nothing. Even PBS. In England, we had two channels. That was the BBC One and BBC Two. BBC One would show great plays. These things would be on television from morning till night. The same play, and it was always about some man standing in a room looking out a window and sighing about the, some other character who had not yet arrived. Occasionally, a woman would bother him and he'd wave her off and shout something at her. And that'd be six more hours of this stuff. No commercials. And BBC would show the football matches. Manchester United, Arsenal... And when one of these bloody teams would win or lose, you'd hear the gnashing of teeth of great triumphing ceremonial parades around the town square. This just went on for days. Even as a child, I would sigh and take a nature's walk in my roll-neck sweater. What is it the bankers say? Time is money. Ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Time doesn't exist. They, 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 they just made it up, you see. They've made it up as a system of control. You know, tell you when to go to bed. And when to wake up. You will know when it is time to wake up. 
for you will be awakened. Thank you very much. I'm Alan Watts. Wake Up with Alan Watts is a production of the Bay Area Enlightenment Foundation. Transcripts of this radio broadcast may be purchased by sending a dollar at a self-addressed stamped envelope to Wake Up with Alan Watts, care of Alan Watts. 1224 Willowbrook Estates, Sausalito, California, 94965.